Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Liam Clifford. Today we have a guest from the political science program doing his PhD, John Trafford. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, it's it's good to have you, John. I it, John's a good friend of mine for everyone listening. And I mean, I know you quite well, John, but you, do you just want to explain to our audience and Ariel just a little bit about yourself and, and why you chose to, to come to Western? Certainly. So uh, I, my, uh, my journey to Western was kind of an odd one. I, uh, so I actually have two master's degrees. I, I finished a master's in history from the University of Victoria. I finished at an awkward time, right around Christmas. I ended up going home to New Brunswick for a few months and uh, I was working, working in a potato chip factory. And I thought, this really sucks. So I tossed in, uh, I tossed in some random applications to a few universities and Western uh, just seemed like the best fit for me. And I'm very fortunate because it, it's almost like the stars aligned to bring me to Western and to help me find a supervisor so that I can study something that I think is very important. So it was kind of a roundabout way that I got to Western, but uh, I'm actually really glad that I ended up here. You know, you know, I read, I read articles now. I even saw one yesterday that said, oh, you know, here's some reason, number of reasons why you should like take a break between your undergrad and your graduate school. And like, so apparently it builds, I don't know, builds character or it helps develop your mind to do something else and like mm -hmm. take a step out of academia. So maybe that experience in the chip factory was oh. valuable in, <laughs> yeah. in some ways, you know? <laughs> well, it, it was valuable. Uh, it taught me uh, what I don't want to do for the rest of my life. And, uh, it taught me uh, it taught me the value of a hard day's work and it also taught me it made me appreciate this is a different topic i guess but it made me appreciate leftist politics and just what the working class sacrifices the only reason i'm able to live in this ivory tower kind of environment is because we have people paving the roads people fixing uh, fixing the showers people uh, everything that we have is because of the working class and i'm really glad i ended up in that job so anyway uh, i uh, i did not <laughs> did not see that connection coming but um uh maybe maybe towards the end of the podcast we'll talk about how we seize the means of production but <laughs> why, why don't why don't we why don't we dig right in to your current phd work sure. i'm really interested to know what you're working on okay so I guess uh, to kind of illustrate sort of the universe that my thinking uh, takes place in, I guess I, what, I, what fascinates me so much, I, I'm a very peaceful person. You know, it, it, takes me, it takes me quite a bit to get angry. I, think I was in a fight one time in grade nine, and that was about it. So I've always been kind of fascinated looking at what would drive someone to violence, and not just violence, but mass killing, mass slaughter. What on earth could make someone want to do that, and not only want to do it, but think it's a good idea? 
And so that drew me to the study of the Rwandan genocide, which is what I focused on in my master's here at Western. I wrote my master's research paper on the Rwandan genocide. And uh, yeah, and I think for the, for the listeners, what I'd like to highlight about my, my area of interest with the Rwandan genocide, well, the key thing that we need to understand about this, it took place about 12 weeks in uh, the spring and early summer of 1994. And at its height, it had a rate of killing that was about five times the Holocaust. And of course, wow. we're all familiar with the Holocaust was an industrialized, industrialized genocide. Whereas the Rwandan genocide wasn't, uh, you wouldn't call it deindustrialized, it was non-industrialized. So it was done with simple tools, machetes, farm equipment, yet they achieved a killing rate five times higher than the Nazis. And I wonder, that just, that put me onto a train of thinking that has kind of informed everything else that I do in political science. I, if that illustrates, illustrates what you were asking. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, just stating those statistics off the bat is yeah. such an incredible way to get someone hooked on wanting yeah. to learn more about how, you know, something so abhorrent and awful, you know, I could think of so many awful adjectives to use to describe it happened. Mm -hmm. So do you mind giving our listeners a bit of a Coles note version as to how the killing took place in Rwanda, perhaps yeah. what the catalyst was and how it eventually ended. Yeah, and so uh, to answer your question, Liam, I'll, uh, you know, I'll give you a quick Coles Notes, uh, Coles Notes his 20th century history of Rwanda, like one minute, because it's really, and the reason I do that is not to, not to demonstrate my historical knowledge, but I believe, and I think this is true within most of the literature, you must take a historical perspective if you're going to understand the Rwandan genocide. And the reason for that is we need to look at the nature of colonialism in Rwanda and how colonialism sort of not created, but solidified the idea of ethnic identity. So in the Rwandan genocide, essentially what had occurred, there were two major ethnic groups. Uh, there's a third, the Twa peoples, but they're very, about 1%. So the Tutsi people are around, well, historically were over 10%. Now they're less, much less than 10%. Um, but the Hutu people were the vast majority, around 85 to 90% of Rwanda. Now, in pre-colonial times, the, Tut the Tutsi peoples were often identified as like a, a quasi-aristocracy, right? So they would often be more pastoral. So they would, uh, they would farm animals rather than, um, rather than uh, foodstuffs, and which made them a little wealthier. The ruling classes would typically come from Tutsi populations, but, but there was always, always significant overlap. There would be intermarriages between Hutu and Tutsi peoples, for instance. Your neighbor might be a Hutu, but you're a Tutsi. This is before colonialization. So the Germans and the Belgians come in in their infinite wisdom, and uh, being sarcastic, by the way. Yeah, and you they can say decide, that again. They decide that, well, Tutsi and Hutu identity, that must function just like it does in Europe. Well, you're either German or you're French or you're Swedish 
and that's it. And so what happens, the colonial powers encourage this solidification of, uh, of ethnic identity into you're a Tutsi and that's that, and you're a Hutu and that's that. And what ends up happening is they kind of use the Tutsi people in a form of indirect rule. And so the Tutsi people are sort of used as a go-between from the colonial administration in Europe to the administration actually in the colony, which unfortunately engendered a lot of resentment amongst Hutu people, right? The reality is that colonialism hurt everyone in Rwanda, but it hurt the Hutu a little more than it hurt the Tutsi. And so years go by, uh, Rwanda gains independence in 1959. And of course, it's a very poor country. Resentment grows, resentment builds. And the genocide, the genocide was planned, but my, my, my thinking actually kind of downplays that. So does that kind of answer your question about like the background of the Rwandan genocide or would you like a little more detail or? Yeah. And you know what, I think it, as the volleyball term goes, it, it sets us up for, you know, further conversation on the matter. Mm -hmm. So essentially what I'm getting is that there are two main groups that yes. we need to be focusing on. One being the Hutus focusing yes. more on agriculture and yeah. the others are the Tutsi who are primarily focusing on livestock. Am I correct well, and in that's, saying that? Um, that's more of a historical overview. And, like okay. today, they don't, today, they don't correspond as neatly to industries like that as they used to. Okay. But even still, there is that residue of Hutus identifying Tutsi as almost like they think they're better than us right? Okay. Because historically, they were the pastoral people. It's like, um, today, they still have the peerage in England, right? Mm. Someone can be the, I don't know, the Lord of Westchester, but they don't actually have any power. <laughs> Nevertheless, yeah. buddy working at the steel mill is going to look at the Lord of Westchester and say, oh, well, he thinks he's better than me. So you yeah. still have that title, leftover. like Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did the Tutsi have titles? Oh no 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 no. There was nothing nothing that strict. No, I'm just trying to trying to give a parallel that might mm. be a little more familiar Is for there, some of the the listeners in North America. You made a parallel as well, like how you know colonialism made it sort of like let's look at the European model and 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 mm -hmm. just like you have French and Swedish and German. But I, I'm imagining the French and Swedish and German, I mean, they, they speak a different language. So there's a mm -hmm. big cultural thing there. Yeah. And then they you described what you described sounded like cultural things as well, like how you do, you know, make your make your living and, and get your food. Yeah. Um, but also, was there was there an ancestral um, divide as well? I mean, I'm imagining well, that, there's ancestry in France is different than ancestry in, in Germany. Yeah. In and Germany. uh it's nowhere near as clear cut in the case okay. of Rwanda because these barriers are semi-permeable. There's a lot of overlap. Um, for instance, they speak the same language. They largely, it's the same traditional religion between the two groups. So there's actually, there's more overlap than there, than there are differences, but colonialism underscored the differences, kind of artificially it artificially highlighted the differences and downplayed the similarities. 
do, pe- do people point at this as like an example of how like maybe race is a social construct or something this sounds the, like a an example of that yeah it, and it's uh, in my mind it's one of the best examples of you know race and ethnicity as social constructs but beyond that it's an excellent example of just how harmful the uh, the social construction of ethnicity can be okay. if it's used for malicious purposes. Okay, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so yes, I think we've got a good historical context as to what's going on in Rwanda from I'm it sounds like the early 1900s, yeah, all the way up till 1994, where yeah. the fan mm-hmm. was hit. <laughs> uh, by something not good yeah so what was the uh what was the triggering um moment that made it happen in and in, in, in such a short period well there was uh so uh, i'll rewind a little bit to uh to 1990 okay so what had occurred um when the the rwandan revolution occurred through 1959 through 1960 now, remember how I had mentioned uh, both the German and Belgian colonial administrations had used Tutsis as sort of like a, like a quasi-aristocracy, sort of a, a go-between, right? All of this- what's an, arist- what's an aristocracy? Oh, by, by aristocracy, that's the wrong word, I suppose. Um, a quasi-elite. Does that make more sense? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Aristocracy would be, would be the wrong sort of symbolism there. So a quasi-elite. But in 1959 and through 1960, all of this gets flipped on its head. Belgium finally gives its head a shake and says, oh yeah, colonialism is bad. They pull out of Rwanda. And so the Hutu eventually become the dominant ethnicity. And Tutsis are relegated to, say for example, um, in post, uh, post-colonial Rwanda, finding a good job as a civil servant and you were a Tutsi, it's not going to happen because hmm. now that Rwanda is independent, Hutu have re, uh, reaffirmed their uh, their control of the country. So and they were they were you said Hutu made up like 80, oh, 90 percent of the people, and yeah. they were at you know all that time during like major colonialism, they were it, like treated as the under non elite yes, second class, <laughs> and then they switched. They're like, okay, yeah. you know, we're going to yeah. be elites now. Then they switch. And so a lot of Tutsi, and there was a oh, endemic violence against Tutsis in this period. And so a lot of Tutsis see this and say, whoa, 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 we're getting out of Rwanda. And so what happens, a refugee culture develops uh, primarily in southern Uganda. And these refugee Tutsis who had uh, formerly lived in Rwanda, in 1987, they formed the Rwandan Patriotic Front, now known as the RPF. And they, in, in 1990, they invade Rwanda from Uganda, uh, being like, okay, we're taking back our ancestral homeland. No more of this Hutu dominance nonsense. So in 1990, the Rwandan Civil War develops. It develops kind of into a stalemate. There's a truce in 1993, a very uneasy truce. So that lasts for about a year. And in April 1994, the president's uh, personal airplane is shot down. Now, even today, I am inclined to say that the RPF shot down the plane, but there are some scholars that argue that 
actually elements of the Hutu-dominated government shot down the plane to make an excuse to, uh, to ignite a genocide. But that's kind of beside the point. So this occurs and the Rwandan government just almost like overnight sets up checkpoints. Uh, it sets up roadblocks. And here's the problem. In Rwanda, you would have government issued identification that would say if you're Hutu or Tutsi. So if you stop at a roadblock and they ask you for ID and you're Tutsi, well, yeah, that was, that was the end of your story and you were murdered. And, and it's remarkable because, because a, lot of, a lot of scholars will look and they place, they place the Rwandan state, the state as foremost in explaining the genocide because the genocide was organized by the state. The genocide was committed by uh, paramilitary groups that were instituted by the state. Um, but I actually, I have a somewhat different, different interpretation in that um, I think a lot of this was actually unplanned. And I, that kind of, uh, that makes me different from a lot of the literature in this subject. Um, so did you guys want to go into like my own sort of interpretation of the genocide or take this yeah, in a yeah. different direction? Yeah, you know what, I would, I would love to pick up on that. So just, just to clarify, so the president's plane that was shot down, he was, he was a Hutu, am I correct in yes, saying that? Yes, you are correct. Yeah, so he's a Hutu um, and the Hutus of Rwanda have seen that not only the leader of their country has been killed, but the leader of their group has been killed essentially yeah so, like you, is is this a is this a crystallization thing going on is is the is is the effect immediate or does it take time to develop excellent question liam and the reason why i think that's excellent is because that hits on a point sort of a real salient point in the literature of was this a concretely planned in advance genocide or should we look at more contingent factors to explain the genocide? And, and by contingent factors, I sort of mean um, just occurrences that just sort of randomly happen that nevertheless generate a violent response. Mm -hmm. um, so I actually take a bit of a mix of both. I think it's, uh, I, I don't think it's possible to separate the genocide from this idea of it being planned because I mean, empirically, empi and when I say empirically, I mean um, like evidence that we can see with our own eyes. So empirically, we know that there were checkpoints, that there were roadblocks, that there were organized gangs, that there were paramilitary groups. There must be a high involvement of the state. Mm -hmm. But I actually take a more contingent explanation. You remember how I was explaining a lot of the overlap between Tutsi and Hutu? That's where I center my analysis. So what I argue, I, I, I argue that it's precisely because the categories of Tutsi and Hutu are very poorly defined that those eth the idea of those ethnicities were manipulated by the state. So because they were, there was so much overlap and there was so much, 
so much uncertainty about like, well, if I'm Tutsi, but my neighbors are Hutu, and I, my friends are Hutu, but you know, but maybe my father-in-law is Tutsi, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, well, what exactly is Tutsi identity? Now that's the role of the state in all of this, in manipulating the idea of what Tutsi ethnicity is, essentially from different than you, but they're just your neighbor, to an active threat. And that's, and what they did they, the Hutu state, it, it planned the genocide, but it planned the genocide in more non-material terms, in more encouraging Hutus to view Tutsi ethnicity as, uh, as threatening. And so, of course, all of this is happening in the context of the civil war uh, fought against the Rwandan patriotic front. And a lot of Tutsi, Tutsi civilians were linked as somehow supporters of the RPF, as if they were the enemy on the home front. So it's so because the RPF was a Tutsi organization, the Hutu state could manipulate the idea of ethnicity to say, well, if there's Tutsi soldiers fighting against us, the Tutsi civilians, well, they must, they must be aiding the enemy. And if they're aiding the enemy, that makes them the enemy. And if they're the enemy, then it's acceptable to kill them. Not only acceptable, but it's your civic duty. And that, so that's sort of where, that's where I center my analysis is on the, the messiness of ethnicity as, a, as an analytical category. So are you, are you, so you, you'd said that your, your main, one of your main questions on, about this is what drives someone to yes. violence? So yeah. is the is what you've now sort of not concluded, but to, <laughs> yeah. come to an understanding of is, is the motivation to, to commit violence is, is a political in nature. You look at, if you're a political person, uh, you can be driven to violence. If, if you feel it's your duty to your, to your, to your ethnicity and your yeah. country. It's, that's definitely part of it that's like the justification of it. If you ask, say, you know, say you're sitting down with someone who had, who committed genocide and having a beer with them or whatever. And you say, well, how do you justify your actions? That would be the justification. Okay. But I think that's only half the story. I think the other half of the story is motivation. And so when we create, when we try to create concrete ethnic groups, which Tutsi and Hutu, as I've highlighted, were not concrete, a ton of overlap. When we, when we create these concrete ethnic identities, we sort of create an extension of someone's personal life. So it's not just that it's a threat against, um, say for example, I'm a New Brunswicker. Say for example, if there was a genocide being committed against New Brunswickers, and I, even though I'm in Ontario, I would think, oh my God, like it'd be as if, Imagine if someone attacked a sibling. They're not attacking you, but it's as if they're attacking you. They might as well be attacking you because they're attacking someone who is integral to your personal identity. Does that sort of, does that make sense? So well, it depends how, it sounds like it depends how closely affiliated you feel to the group being attacked. If yeah. someone said they are attacking humans, I mean, we don't have enough humanists on the planet for right. everyone, every human 
enough humans to say, hey, I, I'm pissed that humans are being attacked. Otherwise, everyone would be up in arms about all the atrocities happening all over the planet, and they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it comes to even, let's say, Canada, there's a lot of people in Canada, but some people will be like, hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally offended that you're, you're targeting Canadians because I'm Canadian. Yeah. Whereas you get even closer and closer. And when you get down to like as close as your sibling, um, then it's clearly personal. I don't know anyone who wouldn't be offended by you attacking a sibling. Of course. And I think um, linking this, all of this required, now when I say this, I'm not endorsing what was done by any means, but all of it required some plausibility. So because you had a Tutsi uh, rebel group in open, in open conflict with government forces, it gave it that sort of plausibility. They could say, well, maybe, maybe there's a connection between Tutsi civilians and, uh, and the military RPF. Well, it's similar to, um, think about Japanese internment in Canada. The Second World War Obviously, obviously, that was a moronic policy. Racist should not have been done. But because Canada was at war with Japan, that gave it some official plausibility. It sort of, it, it gave, it's like you take an initial fact, but then you link it to a hundred different myths. So even though everything else is a myth, you have that core of plausibility if that makes sense. So I think we have to think about genocide in contextual terms as, well, there's a reason why you often see war correlated with genocide. And it's just that reason, because it creates this plausibility, this narrative of a threat. You see the the Armenian genocide during World War I, uh, the Holocaust during World War II, and the Rwandan genocide during that country's civil war. I, I hope that, I, I think that sort of illustrates, illustrates an answer to your question. You know, I think you've given us a really yeah. good idea about what happened and some of the factors that went into why it happened. Yeah. Could you tell us um, just briefly, how are you going about studying this? Where are you getting this information? What's your day-to-day yeah. look like in this program? Well, that's the kicker. Because because of COVID, uh, initially I was going to travel for field research to conduct interviews with uh, veterans of the uh, of the RPF was actually the angle I was going to take from take of studying the genocide. But because travel is unlikely to be an option, uh, I'll be doing archival research, and that's where my comparative my comparative training will come in. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll use access to another case. Um, Say if I have access to archival sources, I'll use that to bolster my arguments because I just don't have access to certain sources anymore because uh, Uganda is a poor country with limited healthcare resources. Their border is gonna be shut for the foreseeable future. And And I don't blame them. I mean, it's kind of sucks for me, but I'll be using archival research and I'll be using the comparative method to kind of try to, to fill in the gaps that, uh, that unfortunately coronavirus is creating for all researchers around the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm not the first grad student at, at Western to have this problem, that's for sure. Well, now, we, you know, we, we wish you the best. I think mm-hmm. that we're getting 
pretty close to the to the end okay. here. So we're gonna have to wrap it up. Um, if you had to give any advice for someone who wanted to study something like you're studying, yeah. what what advice would you give? Let's say uh, COVID aside, <laughs> if someone okay. was just uh, generally interested in the field you're doing, what advice would you give so to, to all those um sorry chip factory workers at the moment? What <laughs> advice would you give? So if someone wants to get into the study of genocide, I would say, I personally think, at least for me, what was a real light bulb moment is when I developed my own sort of theoretical thinking on the subject. And what I mean by theoretical is uh, I developed, there's this idea that genocide will occur if these like, conditions X, Y, and Z are met. And I think it's I think it's important to develop a theor like a theoretical conception prior to your study of it, because if you don't have a strong strong theory background, you'll just be looking at different sources with nothing to guide you. Mm. So anyone coming into a poli sci PhD or a master's program, theory theory theory. Start with theory. That's where everything everything begins. It's the foundation upon which your dissertation will be built. So uh, when you're falling asleep in, uh, in your mandatory theory classes, for God's sakes, pay attention. Okay. Well, that's, <laughs> uh, I think that's great advice. That's yeah. a good note to leave on. And I think yeah. you've demonstrated your knowledge of theory excellently. And, uh, you know, look forward to hearing more about um, where you take this project and uh, how, you, how you write it up. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. Great. Well, thank you for having me. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame, and my co-host was Liam Clifford. We've been speaking with John Chafford, and this episode was produced by Gavin Tolometti. If you'd like to be involved with the show, get in contact with us, get in contact with us. Uh, email us at gradcastradio at gmail. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Social media is pretty hot nowadays, <laughs> at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, our archived episodes are available on our website, gradcast.ca. Um, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. And uh, any podcast app you find, like Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, where all uh, our episodes are available there. Alternatively, we have certain episodes uploaded to YouTube in video format. You can find them there at Gradcast Radio.